Welcome to Creating Toronto, an audio tour by Heritage Toronto. On this tour, you'll trace Toronto's history from its beginnings as a small colonial settlement to its emergence as Canada's largest city, explore its historic downtown, and discover the places and events that built this multicultural metropolis. Today's walk will cover about 1.6 kilometers and begins at the southern portion of Market Lane Park, just north of the St. Lawrence Market on Front Street. Before you start, we recommend you have the digital version of the Creating Toronto Tour open on your mobile device. The digital tour contains a map of the stops, as well as images and extra information. You can find the Creating Toronto digital tour at heritagetoronto.org under the Map and Self-Guided Tours section of our Explore and Learn page. Here at Heritage Toronto, your safety is always our number one priority. With this in mind, if you are walking the tour route, please only cross streets at lights, stop signs, and crosswalks, and please be mindful of traffic and other pedestrians along the tour route. The land covered on this audio tour includes the traditional territory of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Anishinaabe, including the Chippewa and the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today, Toronto is home to many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. Toronto is within the territory of the Dish with One Spoon Treaty, which requires responsibility of those who use the land to share it peaceably and care for it. Heritage Toronto acknowledges this responsibility and recognizes the efforts of these nations in maintaining the land. Remember, you can pause the tour at any time to explore or to consult the map or additional online resources. Now let's begin. Welcome to Stop 1, the St. Lawrence Market. To start, let's talk a little bit about where we are. Where we're standing just north of Front Street is the heart of the St. Lawrence neighborhood, one of the oldest parts of Toronto. It's a great place to start the Creating Toronto tour because this area was home to so many of Toronto's firsts. The original market, which opened around 1803, was once located on the north side of the street. You can see a photo of the former North St. Lawrence market as it appeared prior to 1898 on the Creating Toronto Tour page on the Heritage Toronto website. Where the market currently stands on the south side was actually the site of Toronto's first official city hall. The building that once housed the council chambers was preserved when the building was renovated at the turn of the 20th century. You can see what the chambers looked like by visiting the second floor of the market, now home to the Market Gallery a historic exhibition space where artifacts from Toronto's early days are often on display. In 2011, the St. Lawrence Market was voted the best food market in the world by National Geographic, and I highly suggest you pop in and grab some of their incredible offerings. Aside from the first city council and the first market, this area, known as Market Square, is also the site of Toronto's first public well. You can find a small sculpture in the shape of an old-fashioned hand water pump commemorating it just north of where we're standing. The city's first theatrical show, which was called School for Scandal, 
took place right across the street from here in 1820. And the city's first telegraph was sent here in 1846, heralded as an instantaneous highway of thought. The market also originally contained a holding jail in the basement, a police headquarters, and was once the terminus of the city's first streetcar line. Toronto, like most young cities, got its start through agriculture, so the market was an important place. It's no wonder that the city was built up around it. The market was a place where you could come and make something of yourself. One such man was William Davies, who came to Canada in the 1850s. He opened a humble booth in the market selling a cut of meat that would help build Toronto. Pemail Bacon Within 30 years, he had the largest pork empire in the British colonies. William Davies and his delicious female bacon gave Toronto one of its first nicknames, Hogtown. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. To get to the heart of the story of Toronto and its beginnings, we need to go further back in time than the building of the market. Indigenous peoples have used this land for thousands of years, but the first European settlers to land in Toronto were French. They set up a fur trading post near today's exhibition grounds called Fort Rouet, or Fort Toronto. This was the first time a European used the name Toronto for this land. Originally, through some misinterpretation, settlers thought that Toronto meant meeting place. Now, I love this definition, but it's not an accurate one. The most agreed-upon definition is where the trees stand in water, from the word Tacoronto in the Mohawk language. The French didn't hold this land for long and abandoned Fort Rouet by 1760. The British army moved in, followed by enterprising merchants and fur traders. It was a small settlement to start, but following the American Revolution, many who had supported the British during the war moved from the United States to Canada in the 1780s. They were known as United Empire Loyalists, and it was up to the British to resettle them. As part of this need for new land for the Loyalists, the British undertook the Toronto Purchase from the Mississaugas of the New Credit. Exact details for the purchase are hard to come by, but roughly in exchange for a tract of land of roughly 250,000 acres, the Mississaugas would receive 2,000 gunflints, 24 brass kettles, 120 mirrors, 24 laced hats, a single bale of flowered flannel, 96 gallons of rum, and some money. As you might have guessed, the Mississaugas and the British were not on the same page about the meaning of the treaty. The Mississaugas believed that they were signing a treaty which allowed their traditional uses of the land, but gave access to the newcomers in returns for gift and trade. Disputes about the land and the purchase were ongoing until 2010, when the Canadian government paid $145 million to the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nations in a settlement. But back then, little thought was given to the Mississaugas, and it didn't take long for the British to start building a city in their own image. You can see an image of the original plan for the Toronto Purchase in the Stop 1 section of the Creating Toronto Digital Tour page on our website at heritagetoronto.org. If you are interested in learning more about each stop, I highly recommend taking a look at the Creating Toronto Digital Map Tour regularly throughout your tour today. Our next stop will be Berksey Park, located just west of Church Street between Front and Wellington Streets. The walk should take approximately four minutes. Please feel free to pause the audio tour now until you reach your next stop.
Welcome to Stop 2, Berksy Park. To begin this stop, I recommend standing in the center of the park between Front and Wellington Streets, right behind the red brick, triangle-shaped building. This is the Gooderham Flatiron Building, which we will talk about in just a moment. But first, let's discuss the park around us. This is Berksy Park, named for William Berksy, one of the first surveyors and architects of York, one of the previous names for the town we know today as Toronto. John Graves Simcoe, Upper Canada's first lieutenant governor, had not originally wanted York to be the capital of Upper Canada. Simcoe had wanted it to be in Loyalist Kingston to the east, or London to the west. But Simcoe was swayed by the strategic importance of the location when he was brought to this area by an ancient indigenous portage route that connected the St. Lawrence Valley to the Great Lakes via the Humber River. In particular, Simcoe saw military advantages to Toronto's location, as the Toronto Bay would protect the capital from American and French invasion. If you are familiar with our waterfront, you are probably wondering what bay I'm talking about. Toronto used to have a bay that connected the Toronto Islands with the mainland with a long beach. A storm in 1858 washed the landmass away, leaving us separated from what have come to be called the Toronto Islands. When Toronto was first established, the waterfront came all the way up to Front Street, so-called because it fronted the city. This in turn means where we are currently standing was desirable waterfront property. This brings us to a man named William Berksy, who, along with Simcoe and others, established a plan for the town of York. Berksy and his contemporaries ignored the many creeks and natural landmasses that had guided and shaped the indigenous trails for thousands of years in favour of a strict military grid system. The first street created in the new settlement of York was Young Street. The street remained one of the most important and longest streets in the city. In fact, at one time, many claimed that Young Street was the longest street in the world at 1,896 kilometres. Young Street was built by men who were promised farmable land north of the city. In this way, the workers had incentive to keep building the road in order to get their crops to town. More streets soon followed, but the roads were pretty basic, really just dirt paths cleared of trees and stumps. The lack of infrastructure with a growing population led to the settlement's nickname, Muddy York. There are even stories of the early inhabitants of York strapping wooden planks on their feet like snowshoes to get through the muddy streets. Now, if we look just to our east, we can see Toronto's Flatiron Building, named the Gooderham Building after the family that commissioned it. James Warts and William Gooderham came to Toronto in the 1830s and built a huge windmill to produce flour. Because of its height, almost seven stories, the windmill was a directional beacon in the city, helping people determine where they were. Some say it acted as the CN Tower of its day. But only a few years into their enterprise, William Gooderham's sister, who also happened to be James Wart's wife, died in childbirth. Not long after, Warts threw himself into the windmill's well, some say on account of his heartbreak over the loss of his wife. With the company now in his exclusive control, William Gooderham added a distillery to the business to make use of the mill's leftover grain. This would soon become the biggest distillery in the British Empire and the world, and produce two million gallons of whiskey a year. Today, the former distillery is now a lively heritage district called the Historic Distillery District. 
The complex now contains the largest collection of Victorian industrial buildings on their original foundations in Canada. When William Gooderham died, he left his fortune to his sons, who invested in a wide variety of industries, many of which catapulted Toronto from an agricultural town to an industrial one. His son George Gooderham commissioned this building we're looking at now as the offices for the Gooderham and Warts Distillery. From this building, he'd have a view of both the distillery district and the ships coming in from his many business dealings from the comfort of his office. Completed in 1892, the building soon came to be known as the Flatiron Building because its shape resembles that of a clothing iron. Many of you might be familiar with the building in New York City that shares this name, but Toronto's Flatiron Building is, in fact, several years older than New York's, which was completed in 1902. On stop two of the Creating Toronto digital tour, you can see an image of Toronto's Flatiron Building as it looked in 1898, only a few years after it was built. The next stop on our tour will be 1 Toronto Street, near the former building of Toronto's 7th Post Office. It is located on the north side of King Street, just west of Church Street. Check your screen now to consult the Creating Toronto digital tour map on the Heritage Toronto website to find the next stop. The walk should take approximately five minutes. Please feel free to pause the audio tour now until you get to your next stop. Welcome to stop three, the old jail and post office. On your way here, you would have passed by the site of York's first jail and hanging yard, the Old Log Jail. Today, the site is the location of the stylish King Edward Hotel. The wooden building that first housed York's jail is long gone, but Toronto's first execution took place at this location in 1798. John Sullivan had been tried, convicted, and sentenced to death for committing forgery. Of what, you might ask? A one-pound note. Sullivan and his friend, known as Latin Mike, had gone on a drinking spree by forging and then spending this one-pound note. At the time, forgery, even of a one-pound note, was one of 120 crimes punishable by death in Upper Canada. We will talk more about crime and punishment at our next stop. But I'd like to draw your attention to two different things while we're here on Toronto Street, which used to be the main thoroughfare of the city. Take a look at the lamps that run along the street. They are very different from the street lights you might see in the rest of Toronto. That's because the headquarters of the Consumer Gas Company was located just north of where we are standing. The company was responsible for lighting Toronto's street lamps before the age of electricity. Also nearby, located at 10 Toronto Street, is a Greek Revival stone building featuring a grand east-facing facade with the Royal Arms of England at its top. This is Toronto's seventh post office and was completed in 1853. It was constructed just after the British handed over control of the postal service to the colonial government. The grandeur of this building made it clear that the new postmasters understood the seriousness of their responsibilities. The building was an active post office until 1873. 
It was then used for government offices, including the department, that would become Revenue Canada. In 1937, it was sold to the Bank of Canada and was later purchased by the Argus Corporation. The last thing I want to point out here is that near this spot was the site of the first public washrooms in Toronto. The washroom opened in 1885 and the entrance was located right in the middle of Toronto Street, opposite the post office building. To get to the washroom, you had to go down a small flight of stairs. It consisted of three wooden stalls and four urinals, and there was a public attendant who also offered shoe shining, fresh towels, and soap for five cents. To see what the entrance to Toronto's earliest public washrooms and the old jail once looked like, visit Stop 3 on the Creating Toronto Digital Tour. Public washrooms closed in Toronto because public opinion was largely in favour of privatisation. In 1921, a new bylaw required all local gas stations to provide public washrooms. This drastically reduced Toronto's reliance on public facilities. The last public washroom, which was located at Danforth and Broadview Avenue, closed in 1988. Our next stop will be Courthouse Square, located just northeast of us on the north side of Court Street. Check your screen to consult the Creating Toronto digital tour map on the Heritage Toronto website to find the next stop. The walk should take approximately one minute. Please feel free to pause the audio tour now until you get to your next stop. Welcome to Stop 4, Courthouse Square. To begin, let's return to our history of the city. In 1834, York was incorporated as a city and renamed Toronto. William Lyne Mackenzie was elected the city's first mayor, and he gave Toronto its first motto, Industry, Intelligence, and Integrity which I think tells you something of the priorities of Mackenzie when it came to his goals for the city. We are now standing in Courthouse Square, nestled behind one of the oldest courthouse buildings in Toronto. This neoclassical courthouse building was once known as the Adelaide Street Courthouse and opened in 1852. In 1900, the courthouses moved to City Hall, and since then this building has been used for a number of different purposes. From 1910 to 1920, it was the headquarters for the Arts and Letters Club, and for a brief time, it was even a jazz nightclub. Visit Stop 4 of the Creating Toronto Digital Tour to see the Adelaide Street Courthouse building as it looked in 1867. Thanks to its proximity to the former courthouse, the square where we are now standing was once a gathering place, a place for public demonstration, political rallies, and even religious gatherings. It was also a place for public floggings and long hours spent in the stocks for unruly behaviour. The last known use of the stocks at this location was in 1834. A woman by the name of Ellen Halfpenny was placed in the stocks for drunk and disorderly conduct. At the time, there were all sorts of crimes that could get you into trouble. Toronto had some of the strangest bylaws over the years, many of which are still on the books today. My favourite include that it's illegal to drag a dead horse down Young Street on a Sunday, to wear a felt hat in a sauna, 
to climb trees or to swear in a park, and to drive a sleigh with less than two sleigh bells attached. When Toronto was first incorporated, it was a city with two major political forces. William Lyon Mackenzie was a reformer. He was an elected representative who was campaigning for a government that would be responsible to its people, a concept that seems obvious now, but was revolutionary in the 1830s. The real power in Upper Canada was held by the Family Compact, a group of rich British loyalists who were doing their best to establish the old-fashioned class system of England in the colonies. They were appointed representatives and had veto power over any and all political decisions made by elected officials. This political struggle was a major part of life here in the early 19th century. For a time, nothing happened here in the square that wasn't fueled by these two parties. They disagreed about education, about taxes, about the church, and certainly about justice. The disagreements eventually led to an armed rebellion by William Lyon Mackenzie in 1837. While the rebellion failed, the revolutionary ideas did eventually succeed, at a price. After the rebellion, as William Lyne Mackenzie fled to the United States, two of his reform leaders, Samuel Lount and Peter Matthews, were hung on this spot. Thousands gathered to see the two men face the gallows. The last execution in this square took place in 1862, 25 years later. James Brown, who was widely thought to be the leader of the infamous Brooks Bush Gang, was convicted of murdering John Hogan. Whether Brown was guilty of the murder remains a bit of a mystery. Brown's last words were that he had been a very bad man, but not the bad man that killed John Hogan. After 1862, executions took place in the yard behind the Don Jail, which was located just east of here, across the Don River. They were ticketed events open to the public until a botched hanging forced authorities to move the gallows indoors. The last execution at the Don Jail which was also the last execution in Canada, took place in December of 1962. Our next stop will be the military memorial resembling a church steeple located at the northeast corner of King and Church Streets, very close to St. James Cathedral Church. Check your screen now to consult the Creating Toronto Digital Tour map on the Heritage Toronto website to find the next stop. The walk should take approximately two minutes. Please feel free to pause the audio tour now until you get to your next stop. Welcome to Stop 5, the Cathedral Church of St. James. For this stop, you should be just east of Church Street and just west of St. James Cathedral Church, just one of the many churches that gave its name to the nearby street. For this stop, you will want to be standing beside the World War I monument, which resembles a church steeple on the west side of the church. So far on our tour, we've discussed a few names and nicknames for the city over the years. York, Muddy York, and of course Toronto. But one we haven't mentioned yet is Toronto the Good a nickname for the city coined by our 25th mayor, William Howland, who was the poster boy for Victorian moral stiffness and famously anti-vice, anti-gambling, and anti-liquor. In the 19th century, this street featured three of the most powerful churches in Toronto, 
Just north up Church Street, you have St. Michael's Cathedral Basilica, as well as the Metropolitan Methodist Church. But we'll be focusing on St. James Cathedral, which gets the title of the first church in Toronto. For a time, it was the tallest building in Canada at 305 feet tall. The cathedral today is actually the fourth Anglican church to have been built on this spot. The current church is a large Gothic Revival stone structure, featuring stained glass windows and an impressive collection, or heel, of 12 bells. But the first church at this location was a simple log cabin built in 1807. The cabin was used as a hospital during the War of 1812 and was robbed by the same American raid that also burned down Upper Canada's Parliament buildings. In 1833, the original church was replaced with a stone one, which promptly burned down. Its replacement was soon destroyed in the Great Fire of 1849. To see the remains of the St. James Cathedral following the 1849 fire, along with its predecessors, visit Stop 5 of the Creating Toronto Digital Tour. Construction on the church we see today began in 1850, and it opened in 1853. The church was an important institution in the early days of Toronto. At that time, there was no government or social assistance as we know it today. The church provided many social services, as well as music, community, and education. One of the many services that St. James Cathedral provided was health care, often ministering to Toronto's ill. The threat of disease loomed large in 19th century Toronto. Toronto experienced two devastating cholera epidemics, one in 1832 and the second in 1834. The 1832 epidemic lasted three months and killed 200 people. During the outbreak, the Lieutenant Governor declared a day of public fasting, humiliation, and prayer, and people were told to close their windows and sleep with blankets over their heads. All good ideas when you don't understand how a disease is spread. Torontonians in the 1830s would have been very familiar with the sight of yellow flags flowing on the ships in the Toronto Bay, telling them that cholera had infected passengers on board. At the time, many people thought cholera was caused by poor air quality, and that it could be passed from person to person through the air. Toronto residents set up cholera hospitals to quarantine the ill, and when these became overwhelmed, they quarantined the ships. But cholera was actually spread through contaminated water. For years, Torontonians had been using their city streets, as well as the harbour, as a landfill, dumping excrement, dead animals, and industrial waste into their drinking water. And this was what was killing them. People were terrified of cholera outbreaks, and many were upset with how little the provincial government had done to help York during the outbreak in 1832. It was hoped that a municipal government, a city government, could take responsibility for public health, taking the burden off of the province. It would also have the power to pass bylaws, so there was a push to incorporate the city of Toronto. In 1834, amidst a second cholera outbreak, Toronto's first city council passed bylaws to establish a board of health and regular garbage collection. The City Council also prioritized building city sewers. Even with these actions, the second cholera epidemic was deadly, but the actions of the City Council established important city services that helped save the lives of many Torontonians. During the cholera outbreaks, the priests and congregants of St. James Cathedral ministered to those affected. 
Some of those lost to cholera were buried in a cemetery that used to sit next to St. James Cathedral Church. However, most of the victims of the cholera epidemics were buried in mass graves in Potter's Field, a cemetery just north of Blur Street in what is now the neighborhood of Yorkville. Due to health concerns and urban sprawl, the St. James Cemetery was moved to Parliament Street and Blur Street in 1844, where it still exists today. They did, however, take a few of the most notable headstones and display them on the entry walls of the cathedral. We'll pass by a few of these on our way to our next stop. Feel free to pause the tour now and take a closer look. As this was a cemetery, we ask that, as you continue through the park, that you please respect this place and tread lightly. The cholera pits are still visible today and can be found on the northern end of the park and are identified with a contaminated land sign. You are more than welcome to walk over there and check it out, but please respect the gravesite. Our next stop will be the northwest corner of King and Jarvis Streets, facing the historic St. Lawrence Hall. Check your screen now to consult the Creating Toronto digital tour map on the Heritage Toronto website to find the next stop. The walk should take approximately one minute. Please feel free to pause the audio tour now until you get to your next stop. Welcome to Stop 6, St. Lawrence Hall. Ideally, for this stop you will want to be facing the historic St. Lawrence Hall, which is just south of us on King Street. Before we discuss the building, I want to tell you about one of my favorite Toronto stories that occurred very close to this building. The Clown Riot of 1855. It was 1855 and there was a visiting circus, S.B. Howe's Star Troop Menagerie and Circus, on tour in Toronto, featuring acrobats, wild animals, and of course, clowns. After a long day of work, the clowns decided to spend their night relaxing at a brothel, and Toronto the Good had plenty of brothels to choose from. The problem was that the brothel they chose was already considered the exclusive domain of the Hook and Ladder, a local volunteer firefighting group. As an aside, fire was a serious danger in Victorian Toronto, and there were many volunteer firefighter groups formed to deal with a very real threat. After the fire set by American soldiers in 1813, the government passed a law stating that every homeowner had to keep two buckets handy at all times, one filled with sand and the other empty to be used in a bucket brigade. The Great Fire of 1849 destroyed this neighborhood and led to many new building codes, for example, encouraging the use of brick or stone in construction rather than more flammable wood. Back to the Hook and Ladder Company, firefighters in 1855. Rivalries could be fierce between firefighting groups during this period. Without a centralized and professional city firefighting force, volunteer firefighters often set up their own jurisdictions and fiercely defended which buildings they got to save from fires. As you might imagine, the arrangement often led to clashes. Firefighting companies often disagreed over who got to protect a specific area of the city. A month before the clowns walked into their King Street brothel, for example, a small fire had broken out not far from here on Church Street. Instead of putting it out, the Hook and Ladder group 
got into a fistfight with another firefighting group over who had the right to battle the blaze, so you can imagine that it wouldn't have taken much for a group of clowns to rile up these firefighters. We don't know exactly who started it or what started it, but a brawl broke out between the two groups at the brothel. Any guesses who came out on top? The clowns absolutely demolished the firefighters, but the hook and ladder had local support on their side. Many of the volunteers were members of the Orange Order, a powerful Protestant group that, at the time, had almost complete control over politics in the city. Just to give you an example, between 1845 and 1900, 20 out of 23 of Toronto's mayors were members of the Orange Order. So the day after the fight, the firefighters gathered up their friends and attacked the circus performers. Stones were thrown, weapons were drawn, wagons were tipped over, circus performers jumped in the lake, and the police, mostly members of the Orange Order, did very little. Eventually, the militia and the mayor had to come down and straighten things out, even prying an axe out of a firefighter's hands. And this is how the Clown Riot of 1855 unfolded. To learn more about early firefighting groups in Toronto, visit Stop 6 of the Creating Toronto Digital Tour, where you can see an admission card to the annual ball for the Hook and Ladder Firefighters held at St. Lawrence Hall in 1859. Now let's turn back to the St. Lawrence Hall. Built in the wake of the Great Fire of 1849, the hall sits roughly on the location of what was Toronto's first public market. When it opened in 1850, the hall quickly became the place to be in Toronto. It had dances, balls, concerts, and political lectures. But by the 1870s, Toronto had a number of larger performance venues, and St. Lawrence Hall became less of an attraction. Over the next hundred years, the building fell into disuse and disrepair. However, it was designated as a National Historic Site in 1967 and restored by the City of Toronto to celebrate Canada's centennial. It is now home to Heritage Toronto, Opera Atelier, and the large event space known as the Great Hall, which is still available for use by the public. But let's get back to the opening of St. Lawrence Hall in 1850. The hall opened just after the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in the United States. The act required that enslaved persons be returned to their owners, even if they were found in a state that had abolished slavery. This put all escaped slaves in danger. The northern United States was no longer a safe haven for those fleeing slavery. As a result of the Fugitive Slave Act, thousands of American slaves, perhaps as many as 40,000, made their way to Canada via the Underground Railroad and St. Lawrence Hall became an important meeting place for abolitionists. In 1851, famed abolitionist Frederick Douglass spoke at St. Lawrence Hall. Months later, the first North American convention of colored freemen held outside of the United States took place here. Hundreds of people from Canada, the northern United States, and England attended. Marianne Shad Carey was one of the attendees at the convention. She was born to free parents in Delaware, but after 1851, moved to Windsor, Ontario to teach. There, she started publishing the abolitionist paper, The Provincial Freeman. In so doing, Carrie became the first black woman in North America to run a newspaper, and one of the first female journalists in Canada. Carrie moved to Toronto in 1854, where she continued to produce the paper. 
Shad Carey championed the lives and stories of former slaves while endlessly pushing against injustices like segregated schools. Also in attendance at the 1851 Convention of Colored Freemen were Thornton and Lucille Blackburn. The Blackburns were escaped slaves who settled in Toronto and started the city's first taxi service. Their bright, colorful wagons, painted red and yellow, became so popular that the Toronto Transit Commission, also known as the TTC, adopted the same color scheme in the 1920s. The Blackburns used their profits from the company to help shelter, escape slaves, and black immigrants to Toronto. Today, Toronto is one of the most multicultural cities in the world. Today, our city's motto is, Diversity is our strength. But the city wasn't always the most welcoming of places. When the old town of York was formed, Lieutenant Governor John Graves Simcoe appointed rich and powerful British men to rule the colony with him. Many of these men, such as William Jarvis and Peter Russell, were slave owners. Simcoe could not gain their support on an outright and immediate ban on slavery. So a variation on the ban was passed into law in 1793, known as the Act to Limit Slavery in Upper Canada. The law placed significant limits on the practice. Anyone who was currently a slave in Upper Canada would live out their life as a slave, but every child born to enslaved parents would be given their freedom when they turned 25. In addition, no new slaves could be brought into Upper Canada. The combined provisions of the Act slowly helped to bring about the end of slavery by the 1820s. However, it did not dismantle generations of anti-black racism. Black residents of Upper Canada continued to face overwhelming discrimination and limited freedoms. Over the last few years, Toronto has been naming or even renaming laneways throughout the city as a way to commemorate those who helped build Toronto, but who were previously ignored in telling of the city's history. For example, Ching Lane, west of here, reminds us of the first Chinese immigrant to own his own business in the city. And Pompadour Lane, just east of here, was named for a slave of Peter Russell. Our next stop will be at the southwest corner of King and George Streets. Check your screen to consult the Creating Toronto digital tour map on the Heritage Toronto website to find the next stop. The walk should take approximately two minutes. Please feel free to pause the audio tour now until you get to your next stop. Stop 7. The Home District Grammar School and the Great Stork Derby. For this stop, you should be looking at the east end of the building. This is the former site of the Home District Grammar School. Opened in 1807, the Home District Grammar School wasn't a school as we would think of it today, not in content and certainly not in design. This was a modest one-room schoolhouse attached to the house of Reverend George O'Kill. Up until the 1790s, formal education was limited in Upper Canada. Children of wealthy families were often taught by private tutors or sent to expensive boarding schools. 
but few opportunities were available to those who could not afford steep admission or tutor fees. This began to change in 1807, thanks to a government act known as the District School Act. The new law required each district to provide a school for local children. Although attendance wasn't free, it was an important first step toward establishing a public education system in the city. The Home District Grammar School quickly outgrew its original location on King and George Streets. When it first opened, only five students, all of them boys, attended. By 1812, the number of pupils had grown to 50, so a new larger schoolhouse was needed. Completed in 1816, the new schoolhouse was two stories tall and painted bright blue, earning its nickname as Old Blue. Both Jarvis Collegiate and Upper Canada College, two Toronto schools in operation today, trace their history to the Blue School. On Stop 7 of the Creating Toronto Digital Tour, you can see a drawing of the Blue School as it may have looked in the early 19th century. Out of the generations of children who have attended school in Toronto over the years, I'd like to mention one group that had a very unusual story behind their birth. Those were the children who were born as a result of the Great Stork Derby. In 1926, the wealthy Toronto lawyer Charles Vance Miller died of a heart attack. Now Miller had been known for two things during his lifetime, his strange sense of humour and his dedication to philanthropy. After Miller died and his will was read aloud, it became clear Miller had indulged his two passions to the end. If anyone expected Miller's will to be a run-of-the-mill affair, they were in for a surprise. Miller's will was full of unusual bequests. Miller's shares of a Toronto brewing company were left to temperance advocates. Ministers who preached against the ills of gambling received horse racing stocks. But the oddest allocation was this. The remainder of Miller's estate would be invested for a 10-year period. The Toronto woman who gave birth to the most children at the end of the 10 years would receive the entire sum. Everyone was confused. Why had Miller included this unusual request in his will? Relatives and friends immediately challenged the bequest, taking it as far as the Supreme Court. But Miller, after all, had been a lawyer. He knew the law backwards and forwards, and when writing his will, he made certain that it was ironclad. The bequest stood, thus kicking off what came to be known as the Great Stork Derby. During the ten years of the Derby, which ran from 1926 to 1936, Canada was on the grips of its very own Cinderella story. A literal fortune was up for grabs. Many opposed the derby on either moral or legal grounds. But the idea of a baby-making race had captured the interest of the nation. In 1936, at the end of the derby, many women came forward to claim the prize money. Disagreements over the rules of the race meant that it was the court who eventually had to determine a winner. In the end, the court ruled that four women, who had each given birth to nine children over the ten-year period, met the criteria. The bulk of the money was split between them. They each received approximately two million dollars in today's money. 
On stop 7 of the Creating Toronto digital tour, you can see a newspaper article from 1936 describing some of the winners of the Great Stork Derby. For those four families, this was a windfall. Almost all the women who came forward to claim the prize were living in extreme poverty. This was 1936 after all, and much of Canada had been suffering through the Depression for years. Even with the decision to split the prize money four ways, there were many who complained the race hadn't been judged fairly. For example, Pauline Clark had given birth to ten children during the years of the race. She would have been the outright winner, except that she gave birth to five of her children while separated, but not legally divorced from her husband. The court ruled that those five children were illegitimate and couldn't count toward the derby. Now, it should be noted that Miller's original will didn't say anything about children having to be born in wedlock. It's hard to say how many women participated in the derby, but it's estimated that at one point at least two dozen were in the running. That's hundreds of babies born, an entire generation of Torontonians marked by a dead man's twisted sense of humour. Our next stop will be at 145 Front Street East, just west of Frederick Street. Check your screen to consult the Creating Toronto Digital Tour map on the Heritage Toronto website to find the next stop. The walk should take approximately 3 minutes. Please feel free to pause the audio tour now until you get to your next stop. Welcome to Stop 8. 145 Front Street East, and the location of the 1826 Type Riots. Today this spot looks like a fairly unassuming location, but in 1826, in the place of this apartment complex, stood a modest log cabin that became the home of the newspaper offices of William Lyne Mackenzie. Also nearby is the former site of William Davies' first meatpacking plant, as well as one of Toronto's first streetcar yards. To understand the story of the type riots, we have to go back to 1817, when Samuel Jarvis challenged John Rideau to a duel. Both the Jarvis and Rideau families were well established in Toronto society. The Jarvis family, who had come to prominence in York under John Graves Simcoe, owned a 100-acre plot of land that stretched from Queen Street to Blur Street. John Rideau's father, Thomas, had worked as the Surveyor General for Upper Canada and was active in local politics. Now, we don't know why Samuel Jarvis challenged John Rideau to a duel. It's thought that Jarvis might have owed Rideau money. We may never know, but at least the details of the duel are clear. One summer morning in 1817... Jarvis and Rideau met in a quiet meadow, roughly near the present-day intersection of Young and College. They stood back-to-back, -back, took eight paces and agreed to turn and fire at the count of three. Before the count of three had finished, Rideau turned, fired early, and missed. Jarvis then took his shot. His arm was true and Rideau was killed instantly. But when authorities arrived on the scene... Jarvis swore that John Rideau had lived long enough to forgive him, but it didn't matter. Duels were illegal in the city and Samuel Jarvis was charged with murder, but young Jarvis came from a powerful family who were able to pull enough strings to see him acquitted.
Fast forward 10 years to 1827 when 145 Front Street East was the home of William Lyne Mackenzie. It was also the offices of his newspaper, The Colonial Advocate. Mackenzie highlighted injustice and government corruption frequently in his paper, and Mackenzie specifically called out Samuel Jarvis in its pages, calling him a murderer for his role in the death of Rideau ten years earlier. Well, Samuel Jarvis was fed up. He waited until Mackenzie was out of town, got some of his friends together, and raided his home and newspaper offices. Mackenzie's wife, child, and elderly mother were in the building, and locked themselves in the cellar for safety. Jarvis and his men trashed the office and broke the paper's printing presses and typesets. Although Jarvis's men were technically in disguise, the raid was not a subtle one. Some members of the government even came out to watch it happen. Although many people witnessed Jarvis's raid, criminal charges were never brought against him. For Mackenzie, this only fueled his accusations of government corruption. He used the type riots to drum up public support for his cause and eventually sued Jarvis for damages. He used the money he won from the lawsuit to rebuild and even expand his newspaper. Several years later, Mackenzie was elected the first mayor of Toronto. On Stop 8 of the Creating Toronto Digital Tour, you can see early photos of lifelong adversaries William Lyne Mackenzie and Samuel Jarvis. This is the final stop on the Creating Toronto audio tour. If you'd like to return to the start of our tour, continue west along Front Street to Market Lane Park and the St. Lawrence Market. You can also check your screen to consult the Creating Toronto digital tour map on the Heritage Toronto website to return to the tour's starting point. Thank you for joining us on Creating Toronto. We hope you have enjoyed the tour and, if you are interested in taking other Heritage Toronto tours or to learn more about our mission and programming, please visit us at heritagetoronto.org. This audio tour was narrated by emerging historian Mitchell Daniels. The script for this tour was adapted from the Creating Toronto Guided Walking Tour, developed by emerging historian Shannon Hamilton. Production assistance and editing by Quentin Bradshaw and CJRU. The music used in this tour is High Ride by Blue Dot Sessions from freemusicarchive.org. For a full list of sound credits, please visit heritagetoronto.org. The Creating Toronto Audio Tour is sponsored by the St. Lawrence Neighbourhood Association. TD Bank and the Ready Commitment is the presenting sponsor of the Heritage Toronto Tours program. Heritage Toronto is a charity and agency of the City of Toronto. Through our accessible public programming, we work to build a better city by bringing people together to explore Toronto's shared past and people's lived experiences. If you enjoyed this audio tour and would like to support more emerging historian projects like it, go to heritagetoronto.org and click on Donate to make a one-time or monthly gift. Thanks for listening.